0: Welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Our team combs through the literature for the best articles that you don't have to and then provides expert summaries no bigger than just a spoonful so that you can keep up with the ever-changing landscape of acute care medicine. And now if you feel like you could be rewarded for your time spent listening or reading the journal feed, we offer CME credits through a partnership with Hippo Education. Details for all of that are on our website at journalfeed.org. This is the podcast audio version of the past week's summaries brought to you by the cultured Sam Parnell, Aaron Lacey, and Vivian Lay. The first article for this week was titled Outcomes with the Use of Bag-Valve Mask Ventilation During Outpatient Cardiac Arrest in the Pragmatic Airway Resuscitation Trial out of the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. Out-of-hospital cardiac arrest frequently requires ventilation, but there are several ways that we can do that, and honestly the best option has yet to be clearly shown. The PART and Airways 2 trials recently indicated that supraglottic airways may result in similar or even better survival than endotracheal intubation. Also, observational trials in pediatric and adult populations have shown improved survival with bag valve mask ventilation compared with advanced airway management. Still though, the actual merits of bag valve mask ventilation have yet to be clearly shown. And so we have a study today that's looking at just that. This was a secondary analysis of the data from the PART trial of non-traumatic adult patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest treated by several EMS agencies in the U.S. The sample consisted of 282 arrest patients, who received bag valve mask ventilation only, 2,100 patients who received advanced airway management, and 156 patients who received bag valve mask rescue ventilation, which was bag valve masking after a failed attempt at advanced airway placement. Here, the bag valve mask only group actually performed quite well with higher rates of return of spontaneous circulation, higher rates of survival to hospital admission, higher rates of 72-hour survival, and even survival to discharge and neurologically intact survival versus the group that had advanced airway management. But, of course, of course there's a but. This was not a randomized allocation of treatments, and there were significant differences between the groups. The bag valve mask ventilation only group was twice as likely to have initial shockable rhythms, twice as likely to have an EMS witnessed arrest, and even twice as likely to have arrested in a public location compared with the advanced airway management group. These differences make the results hard to interpret. On the other hand, kind of unexpectedly, was that the bag valve mask rescue group so the people that got bag valve mask ventilation after failed attempt at advanced airway management they had greater survival to discharge and neurologically intact survival compared with the group that got just advanced airway management despite similar initial rates of return of spontaneous circulation which implies that bag valve mask ventilation may help improve outcomes Alright, in a spoonful, for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, bag valve mask only and bag valve mask rescue improved survival to discharge and neurologically intact survival, compared with advanced airway management. But there were several possible confounders, and without a large prospective study, a causal relationship cannot really be established. Alright, the second article for this week was the effect of a shoulder roll during laryngoscopy in infants, a randomized single-blinded crossover study out of the Journal of Anesthesia and Analgesia. No matter who you are, be it a seasoned pediatric anesthesiologist or a general eMERGE doctor, if there were any technique proven to help improve intubation success in infants, it should really likely be used. Here, we have a retrospective crossover control study of 20 infants undergoing elective urological procedures who underwent direct laryngoscopy with or without the use of a 2-inch shoulder roll. The primary outcome for this study was the vertical distance from the angle of the intubating doctor's eyes to the OR table, and the secondary outcome was the percentage of the glottic opening that was visible. There was a significant reduction of the eye to table height with no important difference in the percentage of glottic opening between those who had a shoulder roll and those who did not. There were also no important differences in the number of intubation attempts or complications. Important to keep in mind from this study was that the proceduralists were all pediatric anesthesiologists with extensive experience in infant intubation, so it might be hard to generalize these findings to somewhere else, like, say, for instance, an emergency room, which is a less controlled environment, and likely with a less experienced practitioner. Really, it's best to do all that you can to maximize first-pass success. But since this study doesn't seem to point to a shoulder roll really helping out with that, perhaps it's just best to stick with what you know and are most comfortable with. As a side note though, it's good to remember that shoulder rolls are not completely useless, since they are helpful in infants who are supine and breathing spontaneously, as their large heads can otherwise get in the way and sort of tilt their head, making it harder for them to breathe. So, in a spoonful, a two-inch shoulder roll lowered the line of sight for direct laryngoscopy in infants, but had no effect on the view of the glottic opening. And now on to the third article, which was titled Diagnostic Performance of Emergency Physician Gestalt for Predicting Acute Appendicitis in Patients Aged 5 to 20 Years Old, out of the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. The most common surgical emergency is of course, appendicitis, a life-threatening diagnosis that deserves to be ruled out in patients with abdominal pain. To do this ruling out, imaging is often ordered. This study would seek to remind us about the oldest tool in the physician's medical handbag, Gestalt. If Gestalt is reliable and can be incorporated into clinical decision tools, it could reduce unnecessary imaging. Also, it's free and it's just floating around in your head anyways, so it's worth exploring. This study was a sub-analysis of patients from 11 community emergency departments, which prospectively enrolled patients aged 5 to 20 years old with a chief complaint of abdominal pain lasting less than 5 days. With the 3,400 eligible patients, 436 emergency physicians were asked to rate their predicted risk of appendicitis on a sliding scale and patients were excluded if imaging was ordered or resulted before enrollment. In this cohort, 9.8% of patients had appendicitis, and physician Gestalt had a strong receiver operating characteristic of 0.83. So here, let's break down the numbers a little bit. 23% of the patients who were given a risk between one and 10% underwent imaging, and only 1% of those had appendicitis. For higher risk patients, those in the 50 to 89% chance group, 86% of them received imaging and 27% had appendicitis. So the best performance for Gestalt was in the low risk group, those given a one to 10% chance of having appendicitis for a negative predictive value of 98.9%. On the other end of the spectrum, in the higher risk patients, physicians actually tend to overestimate the risk of appendicitis other interesting tidbits from the study was that doctors more than five years out of medical school had better gestalt and i would hope so also while an elevated white blood cell count is included in several appendicitis risk calculators this study had no significant difference in gestalt performance if the white blood cell count was resulted before or after enrolling the patient all right in a spoonful emergency physicians using gestalt without imaging were found to be accurate in predicting pediatric appendicitis especially in those considered low risk. Now onto the fourth article, multi-center emergency department validation of the Canadian syncope risk score out of JAMA Internal Medicine. Syncope is common and syncope is also kind of scary. It's very worrying for patients and the causes range from things that are even comically benign, that's looking at you post-micturition syncope, to the grave and foreboding, a lot of cardiac problems there. So when no obvious serious underlying condition is identified, patients may end up hospitalized unnecessarily. To help with this, we have some nice people from up in Canada who designed the Canadian Syncope Risk Score to help risk stratify these patients. This study is a prospective validation of this tool through a multi multi-centered trial in nine Canadian emergency departments, recruiting patients aged 16 and older, presenting with syncope, and then evaluating them with the Canadian Syncope Risk Score. Excluded from this study were patients with prolonged loss of consciousness greater than 5 minutes, witnessed seizures, mental status changes, head trauma causing loss of consciousness, a major trauma, inability to provide a history, or other serious outcomes prior to disposition in the emergency department. Patients were followed for 30 days for serious outcomes with a combination of medical records, phone calls, and death records. Of the 3,800 patients enrolled, 139, at about 3.6%, had a serious outcome within 30 days. Of the patients in the very low risk group, according to the risk score, only 0.3% of patients experienced serious 30-day outcomes. And of patients with low risk scores, only 0.7% of them had serious 30-day outcomes. None of these low-risk or very low-risk patients died or had ventricular arrhythmias. Comparatively, 19.2% of the high-risk patients and 51.3% of the very high-risk patients experienced serious 30-day outcomes. All right, in a spoonful, the Canadian Syncope Risk Score, which is available on MDCalc, by the way, was successfully validated to risk stratify emergency department patients presenting with acute syncope. Patients with low risk may be safely discharged. Now for the last article, evaluation of spotic sign and other electrocardiographic findings as indicators of STEMI or pericarditis out of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. For patients presenting with chest pain and ST elevation on ECG, it's critical to differentiate between STEMI and pericarditis as the treatments can vary significantly authors of this study sought to better classify ECG findings to help tell the two apart. This was a case control study evaluating the ECG findings in 207 patients with ST elevation and chest pain. So a little bit difficult, but try to picture these in your head. The ECG changes that were addressed in the study were the absence of spottic sign, which is downsloping of the PR interval, by the way, a convex ST segment, checkmark ST segment, ST depressions, ST elevation in lead three greater than in lead two, and the presence of PR depression. From this study, the best descriptors pointing towards a diagnosis of STEMI were ST segment depression, excluding AVR and V1, and ST elevation in lead three greater than in lead two. The best descriptor points pointing towards pericarditis, on the other hand, was the presence of PR depression which was, however, still present in 12% of STEMIs, and spotic sign was also seen in 5% of STEMI patients. And always keep in mind that there were no ECG findings that did not overlap between the two diagnoses. So while this was a small, single-center study, it was a good review of the important ECG findings and a reminder that there is no pathognomonic finding for either STEMI or pericarditis, so try not to anchor on any one thing you see on the ECG. The senior author from this paper, Dr. Amal Matu, In his weekly ECG teaching series, which you can find at ecgweekly.com if you're interested, there he encourages looking for signs that rule in STEMI first, as this is the more grave diagnosis. So you would be looking for ST depression, aside from in leads AVR and V1, ST elevation in lead three greater than in lead two, and horizontal or convex ST elevation. Look for these before exploring the ECG, looking for signs of pericarditis. All right, in a spoonful. These symptoms of chest pain and ST elevation are common to both STEMIs and pericarditis. While no finding is pathognomonic, ST elevation in lead three greater than in lead two, and ST segment depressions are most suggestive of STEMI. On the other hand, PR depressions and spotic sign are most suggestive of pericarditis. Wow, okay. Now, quick review, what did we learn today? An out-of-hospital cardiac arrest bag valve mask ventilation improved survival to discharge and neurologically intact survival compared with advanced airway management. But several confounders may have influenced this finding. Next, you have my full support in any efforts to improve first-pass success in infant intubation. But from this small study, a two-inch shoulder roll didn't seem to do the trick. It gave a lower line of sight for direct laryngoscopy, but it had no effect on the view of the glottic opening. After that, when it comes to pediatric appendicitis, trust your gut to help make imaging decisions, especially in low risk patients. Next was the fourth study, which showed successful validation of the Canadian syncope risk score to help risk stratify emergency department patients presenting with syncope. And finally, When trying to tell STEMI apart from pericarditis on the ECG, the most suggestive findings for STEMI are ST elevation in lead 3 greater than in lead 2 and ST segment depressions. More suggestive of pericarditis are PR depressions and spotting signs. And that is it for this week. Links to all of the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org where if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. So, we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.